Welcome to Bleacher Blum, a sports podcast for baseball fans. Now, the current master of banter for the Houston Astros television broadcast team, Blummer. Ladies and gentlemen, David Tuttle with his singing expertise on the big mic. And we are back in the bleachers. You know who it is. It's Blummer. I am a 14-year Major League veteran who has since retired and become the Astros color man, bringing some of the banter like you heard in the open and some of the insight. And Tuttle and I decided to start our own podcast. David Tuttle is out there on the West Coast, spent plenty of time in the minor leagues, Unfortunately, did not get the break that he needed to get into the big leagues, but plenty of minor league experience, baseball experience on Team USA. He was a collegiate athlete at Santa Clara University. So we decided when we found out that our daughters and kids were going to the same school to maybe talk a little bit about sports. And lo and behold, here we are in the bleachers having a conversation. Man, you know what? We used to be weekly, but since the playoffs and the end of the season, we have gone bi-weekly. And maybe that does that make us a switch hitter on podcasting? I don't know. But anyways, I don't want to get into that situation. We're going to move forward and let you guys know that we are incredibly excited to have you in the bleachers with us. Today is a big day. It is game three of the ALCS as the Astros head into Yankee Stadium. And hopefully by the time you are listening to this podcast, you will be able to mute the TV and have the glorious sounds of David Tuttle and myself, Jeff Blum, in your ear, maybe at least for... What about two innings these days is about an hour, I think, at the rate these playoff games go with the commercial breaks and stuff like that. So uh, it's been a lot of fun over this weekend. I got to play a couple of rounds of golf up at the Houston Open. I got to play once, and then I got to play in the Dan Pastorini Charity Golf Tournament down in Sugarland and had an absolute blast. And part of the fun of being in the Houston sports culture is being able to meet some of these legendary athletes, you know, the Akeem Olajuwans. Uh, you know, the, the Yao Mings that are floating around. Obviously, I have connections with Jeff Bagwell, Craig Biggio, and, and the like. But Dan Pastorini is actually a guy who is a huge baseball fan. And he is just like everybody else listening to this podcast or listening to the playoff uh, race on TV. They're big fans of our broadcast. And I mean, for, for ex-athletes and fans to come up to me and say what they've been saying over the last couple of months has been fantastic. So I gave Dan Pastorini a big hug and said, thanks for the... Uh, for the shout out and he actually interestingly enough loves watching baseball more than football which i find incredibly interesting but uh in meeting him and getting to be around him there's a connection between dan pastorini and bleacher blums and it is the santa clara university i believe connection with david tuttle tuttle am i wrong or am i right bingo nailed it <laughs> yeah, Pastorini was a Santa Clara Bronco, if you can believe that. Now, Santa Clara does not have a football program anymore, so uh, I don't know if that was Dan Pastorini's fault for not donating enough money, but uh, I'm just kidding. You know, I've heard I've heard nothing but good things. I do, I do not have the pleasure of meeting Dan Pastorini, but, you know, Dan Pastorini went to Santa Clara back when uh, Kurt Rambis and, you know, some of those other guys were, uh, were back nice. at, uh, at, at Santa Clara Broncos. So there are, are some connections, you know, smaller school, but... Uh, Definitely some well-known athletes, and I've heard, not just from you, but I've heard great things about Dan Pastorini, and I think you make an excellent point about uh, him enjoying baseball more, certainly as a fan, but I, I don't know if you can attest to this now, because I felt that way. When I when I got done with baseball, I had guys that wanted me to come out and play uh, softball with them, and 
you know, hey, we have an adult baseball league. Do you want? I had no desire whatsoever. And then I'm like, all right, I'll go play right field and hit. And they're like, no, no, we need you to pitch two innings. I'm like, not a chance in the world that I'm doing that. Yeah. So I, I met a group of guys that I played basketball with, and I thoroughly enjoy basketball, which is a sport I never played growing up, and it, I, you know, I certainly never played organized basketball. And I, and I, I can just relate to what Dan's saying. It's, you know, he got beat up enough. Back then, they didn't protect the quarterbacks the way they do now. He was an awesome Houston Oiler, and uh, he was fun to watch. But I, I can fully relate to him enjoying baseball as a as a fan much more than the uh, the uh, the football sport that he gets to watch now. And I think part of that too is he probably turns on the game, and we we talk about second guessing, and we do get to talk a lot of baseball in here, which is fun. We have some expertise. But he's probably thinking, oh, gosh, I would have, like, right there, he's got to hit the slot guy. you got to hit the slot guy, you know. Or he's probably wondering with all these quarterback rules, you know, he might have played an extra three or four years. Or he might have been a little more agile in these days because you're right, that whole generation, you know, the, the 60s, 70s, 80s football players, man, you meet them. And to, in our eyes, to Tuttle and I, you know, being in their mid-40s, seeing these guys, they're, they're borderline legends, you know, of mythical proportions because you watched them go out and just get destroyed and complete a pass, get, get throttled and be back in there. They didn't know, they probably, they didn't know what a concussion was because they would probably, they probably called it a soft cushion because they didn't want to be soft. So they wanted to stay in these games. And I mean, now they're probably, you know, some guys are paying the price for it. Unfortunately, but uh, I would definitely go out there and play. Not anything away from what they're doing now, but the rules have definitely shifted towards the direction of protectors. I've had a good week. Tuttle, how's your week been? How's the, how's the family doing? Everything going good at home? Yeah, everything's going really well. We had a mother-in-law in town and, uh, as usual, the, the crazy activities going on. But, uh, yeah, it's been a great week. I've gotten to watch a lot of baseball. And as you mentioned, doing this bi-weekly podcast, it's like i gotta, I got to pay attention and get sharp. And I know we'll touch on this later, but man, it always feels good to win, uh, win our fantasy football game, even if we just backdoor that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a good week. And I guess I saw, I saw you or talked to you on Monday or Tuesday. So it just feels like, or, uh, I'm sorry, on Friday of last week. So it feels like, you know, doing this every three or four days, I don't, I don't have as much stuff to, to share with you, my friend. I don't know, but it, feel, it really feels like we're becoming friends. You know, I mean, talking to you this much, I feel like we have a legitimate friendship now. Uh-oh. <laughs> and that maybe, being <laughs> maybe something to worry about. No, no. It's, well, I thought we were going to keep this strictly professional, and I would agree with you. It's bleeding over, Blummer. It's bleeding over. It is. Tear up the contracts. We're going to hang out a little bit more. And we have been hanging out with a lot of you in the bleachers. You guys have done a great job. Guys and gals have done a great job listening to this podcast. We appreciate that. Make sure you keep spreading the news, especially hopefully with the Astros going a little bit deeper into this playoff run. Make sure you get out there, subscribe, rate, review. We appreciate all the feedback. We've got a website. We have become so legit that we have employed Just Geek It Solutions to help us with a website because Tuttle and I can barely turn our microphones on, and now we've got a website. So we, we're keeping track of everything. So if you go to bleacherblums.com, you can check out the podcast links. There's archives. There's a section to figure out who Tuttle is and what he means to this podcast and what he looks like. Uh, you can find out more about myself. You can reach out and possibly have a, a speaking event with one of us. I'll throw you out there, Tuttle. I don't know if you're interested, but uh, you can always uh, reach out to us and find us on there. And one of the greatest things that we found out through this website is on bleacherblums.com is that we've got a mailbag and Tuttle has volunteered to go ahead and take care of that. So he's been getting some pretty good feedback. 
and uh, this has been a big week for us. Yeah, the, the mailbag is heating up, and, and I get a lot of energy from that. The positivity is great, and we really appreciate you guys reaching out to us. I, I did get a comment from uh, somebody in my family saying that they was having trouble getting the podcast. So uh, it's Bleacher Blums, B-L-U-M-S. Yes, it used to be Blum when we started because, you know, we had to we had to ride the coattails of Jeff Blum and his notoriety, but now we've turned it into Bleacher Blums, B-L-U-M-S. So go to bleacherblums.com as as Jeff just mentioned, and you can find all of the all the information that you need, including the uh, former podcasts and the latest podcasts on there. So uh, the first question comes from Landy A, and this is a simple one, straightforward. It just says, "When are you guys going to have guest interviews on the podcast?" And I'm going to pass out onto you, Jeff. After I say, we did have two when we first started. One was AJ Hinch, our first guest, and then we had Megan O'Brien, who's a uh, a kind of a beat reporter for the New England Patriots. So we've had a couple of guests and and we're trying to, you know, we can always tweak the format, but those were our first two and um, maybe we'll have more. Yeah, when the playoffs end and people become a little more available, most notably the players, coaches and and the like, I would imagine that a lot of people are asking about some of the celebrities and I have contact with ex-Astros or ex-players you know, even Tuttle does too. We've talked about a couple of names that he's avail- he has available to him out there on the West Coast. So maybe it could turn into a situation where Tuttle has the the opportunity to get one on one with somebody and record that interview. Uh, much like myself, I'll be able to get one on one with somebody and have an interview. But in the off season, maybe when things die down a little bit, we'll have the opportunity maybe just to have an interview podcast as opposed to going through all the segments that we currently have right now and really narrow down and focus on whoever the interviewee is. Because I agree with fans at home, that was kind of the premises to abuse the availability that I have with these guys and maybe get near them and pick their brains a little bit. So, and that being said, and it's not just professional athletes, celebrities and people like that. They're going to be people that Tuttle and I know, maybe some good parents or good, you know, good local coaches and things like that stuff that you can actually use in your everyday life. But also maybe for me and Tuttle brought this up a couple of times ago that we've talked off air is why not reach behind the curtain a little bit and see who runs these teams a little bit and maybe get a get a clubhouse manager on there, groundskeeper. You know, there there's a lot of people that go on behind the scenes to kind of make baseball happen. But yes, we are interested in doing that. It's just a matter of, you know, like Tuttle said, logistically trying to figure out who, how, when to get that done. But if more people pick up the interest on it and they want that, we're going to do our best to bring it to you. Awesome, Blummer. You know, it made me think of first person I thought of was Brent Strom because he knew you in double A. And I'm thinking, hey, let's get somebody. Oh, man. Let's get somebody who has some Blummer double A stories on. The other thing is, and I've heard this through second hand or third hand, but Brent Strom has been quoted because he was the second guy to have the uh, surgery, the elbow surgery. And he said if he was mm-hmm. the first guy, it'd be great. They call the surgery the BS, the BS surgery. <laughs> and so that's that's his quote that I've, that I've heard third hand. But he might be a fun guy to have on because he would have some, you know, background and uh, some maybe some inside scoop on what Blummer was like down in Double A. So, uh, all right, moving on. This question is kind of we've touched on this last time with the ball a little bit, and there's a couple other questions regarding this. But this says uh, this is from Nita W. Nita, thanks for the question. Are the rules for sure changing next year that a pitcher must face at least at least three batters? If so. Tampa Bay is going to have to have a major overhaul of its current strategy. Hashtag too many pitchers. That's from Nita. What do you got on that? 
No, she, she is actually right because they are going to institute some of those rules. The roster is going to be adjusted a little bit. And yes, the use of the guys out of the bullpen is going to be altered. So it will be interesting to see how they, how they, you know, adjust to that. The only trick to or loophole in that rule is, is if a guy comes in, blows out an arm, blows out a knee, there's some kind of injury that he has to be taken out. They can go out with the trainer double check the injury, explain it to the umpire, get that guy out of there and bring a pitcher in. So maybe there might be some gamesmanship mixed in there if a guy's getting roughed up, but uh, there is going to be an opportunity next year to watch a pitcher pitch at least three hitters instead of having these matchups that go every single hitter. And, you know, Tuttle and I actually talked about that with the Dodgers bullpen use. They probably should have done the matchup hitter by hitter, uh, but they stuck with Clayton Kershaw, backfired, but I agree with a lot of fans out there that sometimes it can get a little much to watch a, a manager literally standing on the top step. As soon as the hitter's done, the, the manager comes out, there's a new pitcher in. But uh, the rule will change. You are correct. That's amazing that that actually will change. You and I had the great pleasure of watching Osmus do that to win a game against the Astros. And I think he used seven, <laughs> seven pitchers in three and two-thirds innings or something with the expanded rosters. So I can see a point for that. But man, I, I think that that uh, Nita's question's outstanding. There's another question from Renee H, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna read it because she sent in the question, but it really piggybacks on what the question we just had. So I just want to give her credit. Been a lifelong Astros and baseball fan. After watching the ALDS and the ALCS so far, I really cannot wait until the new pitcher rules take effect next season. I feel like the constant changing of pitchers is making the game last longer, and it doesn't keep me interested. I think seeing the pitchers get out of jams is one of the things that make the game fun. How do you both feel about the three batter minimum, blah, blah, blah. So same, same question, but I guess my question is, I kind of like that strategy and I felt like this, we've, we've sort of touched on this prior with the steroid era is with steroids, you know, they would get a bunch of boppers in the middle of the lineup and you'd be like, all right, your three, four, five, six, seven hitters could all hit 40 or 50 home runs. Um, defense had, was de-emphasized a little bit. And now they've kind of gotten back to having the right players in the right positions. I mean, you got a, you know, a, a, a kind of a slap hitter playing center field, maybe a, a shortstop or a left fielder that's a get on base guy, steal bases kind of guy. And now to um, Nita's point, it, the whole Tampa Bay race system is set up with, hey, we've got a collective uh, of 12 really good pitchers. And I guess I think the counter to that is, hey, if they're all good, then they can at least face one or two or three hitters. But, uh, I mean, that might have to, as she said, there may be an overhaul of the kind of the whole minor league philosophy and drafting philosophy. Do you see that being coming into play or? No, I, I think it has to, you got to really stretch these guys out and get them to throw it. I mean, I would imagine a guy coming out of the bullpen, you have to be in the condition of throwing maybe 30 pitches. That's it. But 30 pitches is excessive. I would imagine that most pitchers are between that 16 to 19 pitches, but if you have an extended inning where guys are working walks or they're fouling balls off or you're having a tough time with your command, you're going to have that pitch count jump to about 30. And that's really kind of the 25 to 30 pitches I've noticed is where relievers start to tail off and that fatigue sets in. So you figure 10 pitches a hitter is in extremely excess, excessive. It's way too many, but you need to kind of prepare for the worst, hope for the best kind of situation if you're that pitcher, because if you get fatigued, you're only going to get hit that much harder, but maybe you run through those three hitters pretty quick, and then you can get your butt out of there because you're getting shelled. 
but it's going to definitely take a shift in philosophy with management. It's going to take a shift in philosophy of that pitcher too, because now you're not going to see as many guys getting called up to maybe face the Red Sox in a series because you know you're a matchup guy. Now you have to be a little more adept to being able to going out there and getting right-handers and left-handers out. Or I think what this rule is mostly for is to get those left-handed specialist matchup guys out of the game or keep them in the game a little bit longer because if those guys just come in to face that one left-handed hitter, they're gone, and then you bring in the righty. But if you have a situation where you've got to face three hitters, you better have that left hand of the table to get right-handers out. So I think it's a, it's going to be tough to manage. It's going to be interesting how they manage, but I think it's better for the player, and I think it's better for the pitcher to be able to develop and the kind of stuff that can get righties and lefties out. And maybe we do, with this new rule, see the, the philosophy of matchups go by the wayside. Which to me has been an integral part of baseball. So uh, as you said, this this change may be a bigger change. They will also have 162 games next year to uh, to dial it in. So we'll we'll figure out how that goes. And and it seems now with our conversation about managers, 162 games doesn't give them any idea based on what Dave Roberts did or Joe Madden a couple of years ago. They just throw it out the window anyway. So I mean, they just bring mm-hmm. in whoever they want. So all right, moving on. Uh, the next question is from Carlos E. Thanks, Carlos, for sending in your question. The other day, a reporter asked Garrett Cole how he felt about playing the Yankees, his favorite childhood team. What was your experience when playing your first game against a team you grew up loving? And I'm going to defer to you, obviously, on that one. I grew up watching the Padres, Angels, and Dodgers. I was probably more of a Dodger fan growing up just because of the Vin Scullys. They were obviously a better team in Southern California with uh, in the late 80s, mid to late 80s. And I, my dad was a Dodger fan, so I watched them in the late 70s when they were going and playing the New York Yankees. So having been a Dodger fan, had, had going into Dodger Stadium, guess which team I loved beating up on uh, the most other than the Cubs? It was the Dodgers. I loved going in there and proving to that organization, man, you guys didn't pick me to put on your uniform kind of thing. You know, there was a little bit of a, a, a jadedness there for me where I was just like, man, I can't believe they didn't want me to play for them. So I put a little chip on my shoulder, but I also took in it a lot of excitement. I was absolutely thrilled to go and play in a place where I grew up watching baseball, to be able to stand on that field where I used to sit in the seats and now thinking about there might be another kid in that, you know, that fourth, fifth deck up, you know, in the red seats or the blue seats where I used to sit, sitting down and watching me play baseball. So it was kind of, it was kind of nice of passing the torch, so to speak where I, you know, I watched and now I got to be on the field and hopefully there was some, some young fan watching the game of baseball at Dodger Stadium and said, oh, that's where I grew up watching the game. So I think it kind of it really brings back some of the youthfulness and some of the joy when you get to go play in a place where you, you, you really establish your love for the game. And what's interesting about that, just a quick little side note, is my first at bat in Dodger Stadium was against Chanho Park. And I think I took a 2-1 fastball out to right field for a home run. So I, my first at bat in Dodger Stadium was a home run. And I, you know, running around, I, I left. That was back when we could leave as many tickets as we wanted. And I left about 60 of them in the second deck. And, you know, my mom's going nuts. My dad, you know, everybody's just going bonkers. And then uh, my wife actually, I think it was last Christmas, uh, somebody reached out to her who did construction work on Chavez Ravine and had two two blue seats that I in the sections you know or at the level that I used to sit in, and my wife purchased them, got them, 
and now I have two seats from the blue section where I grew up watching baseball in my house. So there, there's a strong connection between Dodger Stadium and myself, but uh, most of the damage was done by myself in that stadium, which I thoroughly enjoyed. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's funny. I, I like to hear the contrast between, you know, the chip on your shoulder with enjoying the environment anyway. I mean, none of those people, obviously, individually, not the third baseman of the Dodgers or Chan Ho Park had any sort of like, you know, slight against Jeff Blum. I mean, unless you kept hitting two one fastballs out on him. But but to your point, it, it is. It's kind of a it's a it's not a tug of war. I, see, I grew up watching the Giants in Candlestick Park. And if you try to go to Candlestick Park right now, you're just standing on an empty point. There's nothing there. So I really enjoyed that. It would be actually fun to get some chairs or some uh, some old bleachers from there because I'm sure they exist. But uh, yeah, going to AT&T Park or going anywhere else doesn't really hold the same. You know, mm -hmm. most of the stadiums are new. So you had the good fortune. I mean, Chavez Ravine is still there. Wrigley Field's still there. There are a couple stadiums still around, but not many are still, still around. So um, good answer. I love it. Uh, this question's a little long, but interesting nonetheless. This is from Tracy G. I think Tracy G's uh, emailed this line before. How much do players actually hear hear the fans from on the field? When two-thirds of the stadium left last night, ALCS game one, in the bottom of the eighth, it felt like the stands did all those years I sat there in 2011 and 2012. Empty and unsupported. Hey, I like her. I like where she's going with this. Do you Be think honest. the players... Yeah. Do you think the players feel like the fan support is abandoning, abandoning them? I dated a Cubs fan for a while, and he insisted no one ever leaves Wrigley early. After going to many games there with him, I told him that's not true, but they sure don't seem to leave even in losses like we left our boys last night. I was in section 424 and watched an Astros fan in a lower third base line section practically screaming at those around him to stand and cheer. Good for you, guy, in your attempt, but it didn't work. Okay, rant over. Love your podcast. That's, I mean, oh, hashtag never leave early. I love the hashtags too. So Tracy G, I'm sure the Astros appreciate your support. No, stay strong. The players love the support. And going back to that uh, National League Division Series with the Dodgers, how about the Howie Kendrick home run? As soon as that thing got over the fence, guess what happened? There was a mass exodus from from Dodger Stadium. They bailed out to the point where the broadcast recognized it. So, yes, everybody does notice that. The players do notice it. And I think it was very apparent in game two. So you show up the next day after everybody basically got up and left and quit on the Astros after giving up those runs early on in that ball game. And let's be honest, the lack of offense was atrocious in game one. And game two, guess what? It was a packed house until about 1230 at night until Carlos Correa hit that home run. So it means a lot to those guys. Stay in the seats. You pay good money for it. Uh, cheer those guys on. But they do. When you're a player on the field, you, you know when it's empty. You know when it's full. You know when people are leaving. And the people at home usually leave when the home team is not doing so well. And uh, there's no reason to reinforce that point. And to the Chicago Cubs thing, give me a break. Good grief. People are paying a fortune. They're, only, they're not even I, – I played so many games in Wrigley Field where I, could, I knew that the fans in the stands could care less about what's going on on the field. So the whole Wrigley argument may be a little bit different these days because they have been a lot better. But uh, there, there were plenty of games where I saw that place empty, most notably in April and September when the weather changes a little bit. But uh, a lot of times I've noticed that that place could be full and we still wouldn't know which side they're cheering for. Yeah, so that's a great question, Tracy. And I will say this. I mean, 
don't be like the Dodgers fans. Blum started the answer with that. I mean, if yeah. you wanna if you wanna scare Astros fans into staying in their seats, you do not want to be like Astros fans. Astros fans are, or I'm sorry, Dodger Dodger fans are already known as like show up in the second inning, leave in the seventh. Yeah. And as you said, when Howie Kendrick hit the home run, the playoffs are a little different. People stuck around until the tenth, and then as soon or tenth or eleventh, as soon as he hit the home run, that place was a ghost town. So I I, I think that's great to hear from you that. Of course, they appreciate the support. The one thing that yeah. the one thing that ball players and I know this from personal experience that we it ha- it has to be the collective. I mean, every once in a while, especially in minor league parts, you're gonna hear one nozzle like "Hey, you guys suck," you know. But in a big stadium with forty or fifty thousand people, you don't really hear one person. But the collective roar and the collective excitement does help the home team. When twenty thousand or thirty thousand people leave and you can hear a pin drop, it certainly it affects the team, maybe not in the way you think, but it's kind of like, hey, you know, we're out here on our own, we're on an island. And that's you and I talked about this a few podcasts ago. You certainly want to, you know, utilize that home field advantage that you earned by winning 107 games. Absolutely. These are these are great, by the way. Doing a great job on these mailbag uh questions and comments. Yeah, really appreciate it. So uh last one. This is a statement, not a question. But uh, from it looks like from Lessis Y, Lessis. All right, hope I got that right. Uh, Joe Buck irritates me because he is so biased against the Astros. All right, thank you, Lessis, for that. Uh, I I guess I I just want to say for me because we did touch on Joe Buck last podcast. I think he's fine. I mean, my shortcoming in general as a person, as a human being, is that I typically see the good in people. So if you're seventy five percent bad and twenty five percent good. You know, give me a beer and I'll be like, yeah, that guy's not so bad. You know, he's got this positive quality. And my wife's like, what about this, this, and this? I'm like, yeah, but that good thing is good. So Joe <laughs> Buck for me is fine. I, I don't hear the bias, but I also know, you know, he probably has an affinity for the Cardinals and, um, you know, that's probably just ingrained. But he just, I mean, he's not super exciting. He's no Bob Costas or, uh, you know, or uh, gosh, the Dodger guy just escaped me who you like. Um, oh, Vin Scully. Oh yeah, he's no he's no Bob Costas or Vin Scully, but he's you know his he's he's fine. So anyway, do you, know you feel like he's? It's actually you know what I do. I obviously yes, I feel like the Astros deserve oh. more attention. Uh, but I do know that it's a you know New York major market. Everybody Yankee Yankee Yankee. But uh, there, truth be told, and my limited knowledge of regional sports coverage and what we do, obviously we can be a little more biased and uh, we have a very good team to talk about. So it's a lot of fun for us to dig up information and make our guys sound like Greek gods when they go out there. But at the same time, you know, we, we have a pre-production meeting at before every single game, every single game I've broadcast, I have sat down with my producer, Carl Patterson and Todd and Julia, and we've said, okay, these are some of the topics we want to talk about. So I'm not sure how the national broadcast is brought up, but I'm sure there's a storyline weaved through the ball game that they want to touch on or certain topics that they want to get to. And maybe that's how it becomes a little more biased because I would love it if they actually had, you know, two sheets of paper and said, okay, we've got five Yankee stories, one Astro. What's wrong with this, you know, and have them fix it, find a way to bring those stories together and be able to tell the story on both sides, because that is the job, I believe, of, 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 a, of a network doing a national broadcast game. Now, I applaud the TBS side. TBS has done a very good job with, I believe it's Brian Anderson, Ron Darling and Jeff Francoeur. 
Francoeur is a little raw for me, a little young, but I still like the insight he gives. Braun Darling does a pretty good job, but Brian Anderson, who does the play-by-play, that dude, the inflection in his voice when things are going good for either side is almost the same. And I love that fact. Get, I just, for me, Joe Buck, just get excited about the game. Don't get excited about who does it or who doesn't do it. Just get excited for the game. Show me the love for the game of baseball. And maybe he gets a little deluded or overwhelmed because he's doing football, basketball, baseball, golf. I mean, this dude has done everything. But when I'm watching baseball as a baseball fan, I want to hear the love for the game. And I think that should be the priority, not who wins, who loses, who gets the hit, who doesn't get the hit. Show me the love for the game. And that's where on the TBS side, and yes, I do, I I know Brian Anderson. I like the guy. He's always had great information when we played Milwaukee. But he, you, you can feel that he loves the momentum of the game and who it's for and when it's happening. And he'll recognize both sides. That's what I like. And I think that's where Joe Buck kind of loses it. Where, you, you know, you know, late in the game, he's like, finally a home run, you know, or finally a run scored. Or, man, there hasn't been a hit since the sixth inning. And, you know, you can feel kind of the dullness of it. And I, I, I wish that wouldn't happen. That's my only issue. But just trying to give you a little bit of what's going on behind the scene, not necessarily to protect those guys or have you change your opinion, but just have the understanding that these guys have preset storylines that they talk to. That's I, that's great insight. I'm going to have to listen a little bit more closely. And I think you kind of touched on it with the five Yankee stories and the one Astro story. What I always felt like, and, and I'm learning a lot about that through this podcast, is you and I come up with like seven or eight topics and three or four of them may get left on the back burner or it, it just may not come to fruition. It's not where the conversation goes. Joe Buck um, and and you know and everybody in that should have five or six stories that they like and you know five or six or seven or eight stories that they could probably weave into the game and they'll know which one or two are going to come to the forefront by, based on the feel of the game like you said if you're talking about the pitcher's duel and it turns into a home run derby then you got to have the ability to turn and talk about the home run derby aspect you can't stick to your pitcher's duel like well you know jv's really been solid and he has three no hitters to his credit well not if it's a 10 to 9 game you know then you're forcing the issue and it sounds like that's what you're saying personally but also maybe where the fans go right that they're forcing kind of the storyline that they've come up with and and just to finish that i love pre-production because it makes me think of pre-boarding like i've heard a comedian talk about (laughs) do you board the plane before you actually get on the plane like pre-boarding we're having a pre-production isn't it just a production meeting anyway that that always makes me laugh but I, i i'm i'm really um thankful for your insight because i i don't i don't know if i've listened to it that way but doing this podcast and getting some ideas make me think about it uh, uh, think about it a little bit differently. And my idea when I started broadcasting and just full disclosure is obviously I didn't want to change who I was as far as my personality. I wanted to bring my own touch to it because trying to fill in for Jim Deshays would not have worked. He was too good. And I just wanted to bring my, my certain, you know, rawness or, you know, to the broadcast, but the one underlying thing, and I, somewhere in my office, I actually have a notebook that I first started broadcasting with. And the first thing I wrote in it, and it was kind of as a reminder, and I think that a lot of, you know, a lot of these national broadcasts and a lot of the guys that do pre and post games, you know, putting everything, put put all your bias or your opinions aside because you're going to have them, you're human. But the one underlying fact 
in everybody that's playing the game, has played the game, or calling a game, or watching a game. They love the game of baseball. Yes, they're going to pick sides because that's what fans do. But the underlying, if you're doing a national broadcast, and I try to do this for the Astros broadcast because I know that there's going to be teams, you know, there's going to be fans watching out of market or the true fan that's tuning in just because we're the only game on, they're going to watch. The one thing I try and remember is that I, I want people to know that I love the game and I want to encourage the game. So I think that's, you know, if that was, if that was the meeting and that was the uh, baseline for what these guys were doing, I think they'd be in a lot better shape. Shout out to Jim Deshays. Big shoes to fill, I guess. That's what you said. But, you know, I, th I think that does come through the, uh, the, the love for the game. And honestly, that's, I mean, you and I talked about being fathers of multiples and having some commonality and the fact that I'm fairly social and I just walked up to you and said, hey, we should uh, talk more. But the podcast is really about that. It's kind of our, our love for, you know, kind of sharing the insight that we've gained over the past 20 or 30 years being around the game. And obviously some people enjoy it. And, uh, you know, we, we definitely have an opinion about it. And if we were sitting around the, the water cooler, we'd be talking about it anyway. So that leads me to um, Crush City Tees. The, uh, the Garrett freaking Cole shirt, the hundo, is out. And Jeff put that up. Hundo. hundo. And Jeff threw that out on Twitter, and that shirt sold like hotcakes. So I'm waiting for uh, Crush City Tees to send me mine. But, uh, folks, Crush City Tees, T-E-E-S.com is the place to go for custom H-Town baseball tees, including your brand-new GFC Hundo T-shirt. There's an I'm Tingly one there, and, of course, the Bleacher Blums T-shirts. Um, they have direct-to-garment machine that can make your idea a reality with no minimums, no setup fees, and unlimited colors. They also provide embroidery and screen printing, design and printed right there in Houston, Crush City Tees, T E E S dot com. You can get our shirts, Bleacher Blums shirts, Bleacher Blums shirts at bleacherblums.com. And those are produced by CrushCityTees.com. All righty. Yep. We appreciate them. And I had no idea that the Hundo t shirts would fly like they did. I really appreciate that. And uh, Mr. Hundo is going tonight. Uh, with the Astros picking up a win in game two, which I feel, I don't know how you felt about it, Tuttle. We're going to dig into some of the Astros-Yankees series and touch on the Nationals and Cardinals. Uh, the mailbag was phenomenal. I, I love that people are reaching out. I love that people are taking the time to get online and get to us, and we hope that we are providing the answers you need, want, or don't even want to hear because it's about the conversation. So keep bringing it. The, the Blums out in the stands with us have done incredibly well. But Garrett Cole, Mr. Hundo himself, GFC, Garrett freaking Cole is on the mound again tonight in game three because the Astros finally picked up a win in this ALCS. I say finally, they've only played two games, but it really feels like the offense has not shown up. I've got some numbers to back that up. But Garrett Cole is an interesting story because he pitched game five, really established himself in that division series in the postseason for the Houston Astros after a great finish to the season. And I think this is another opportunity with game five uh, being a Garrett Cole start. It forced him into the situation to be the game three starter. And I actually love the fact that he is the guy going out there today for the Houston Astros, because in 2017, the Astros went to New York and got throttled in every sense of the word. The fans got to him. The team got to him. They got pummeled. They came back home with their tails between their legs, but they showed up at home and played extremely well and eventually won the last two games to go into the World Series. So an exciting, maybe tense time for the Astros as they're warming up as we speak, getting close to game time. 
And I really hope that they're older now, obviously, more experienced. They have a feel for the situation and they're going into a hostile environment that maybe they weren't ready for in 2017 and got their doors blown off. This should be a different situation because, because they understand what it's like to play here. And they also understand they've got a guy in Garrett Cole on the mound for them. How important for you was that game two for the Houston Astros for them to finally, you know, scratch that one out? Because it was an interesting ball game all the way around. For the Astros, it was a must-win situation because going into New York 0-2 would have been awful. But it also would have meant you would have lost a start for Justin Verlander, and that would have been the backbreaker for me. What did you see in that game two, uh, Tuttle? Yeah, great insight. I, I actually felt like it was a must-win also, and I think losing whatever they did the night before, seven to one, or I mean, it was seven to nothing pretty much when all the fans left. Um, was it seven to one or seven nothing? What was the final? I think it was nothing. I think yeah. they got shut out. I should yeah. know this, man. I should be a better person. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't know it either. So yeah, no, I totally agree. I felt like that was a must-win, but I will add to this: if you are in a must-win game, I think. The Astros would love to face J.A. Happ with the game on the line at any time, and I don't know any if day. they're going to bring that up. Any, I mean, I, I mean, J.A. Happ to me, J.A. Happ is awesome. He's a great starter. He's a great three or four starter, and has had a really solid career. So it's no slight on him, but in many ways, that's like having Kershaw in the game with the game on the line. A guy throwing 91, 92 from the left side against your right-handed hitters. I mean, that that just out. You know, I, I was going to bring this up earlier, but Aroldis Chapman, you mentioned about the, the new pitching in the mailbag, the pitching kind of philosophy you're going to have to have. And, of, of course, Aroldis Chapman can get lefties and righties out, so he's not going to be a matchup problem. But the fact that he threw 33 pitches, 32, 33 pitches in that inning, made Booney had to take him out. So I think he probably would have extended him for the ninth and the 10th. He couldn't. And now you have J.A. Happ. Again, J.A. Happ came in and got the lefty out and had to go back out there for the next inning. And, you know, we talked about Correa and his health or whatever, but Correa is an, obviously an outstanding baseball player. But with a short porch, I mean, I think that's where the Astros won the game. And I did feel like it was a must win. But I think if you all said and done, like watching the whole thing unfold, I, I don't think Booney made any huge decisions that ruined the game. But I'm saying if you tell the Astros in the 11th inning it's going to be a tie ball game, and Jay Happ's going to be out there for you know the foreseeable future. That I mean, you know, they'd be thrilled. So I think it was must win, but I, but I think the way it turned out is a huge confidence boost for for the Astros. And and I agree, going in one one with Garrett Cole on the mound is uh, I don't know who went in. You said they they had uh, they they fell apart in 2017 in Astro in uh, Yankee Stadium, but boy, Garrett, having Garrett Cole on the mound anytime in any situation in a you know, winner take all, or even if they were down 2-0, I mean, it gives the offense a heck of a lot more confidence. So I, I think great call by you, but I mean, I think the Astros have them right where they want them. If Jay Happ's going to be the guy to come in and uh, and try and close out those yeah. games. And I think you bring up a great point about a role as Chapman. That's something that kind of gets overlooked because the way I feel like I'm, I feel a little bit differently about how Aaron Boone handled the situation because he started John Paxton a guy with experience against this, uh, the Houston Astros because he pitched with Seattle for so long. And I think, I don't, I don't know going into that game if he felt that way or if it was in the middle of that inning, in the third inning where he said, oh, oh shit, I've got Paxton out there, two guys on, Bregman's come up, he almost hit a home run last time, I'm going to the bullpen. Because the bullpen activity actually started pretty quickly, so 
there had to be something in the works or something that told Aaron Boone, I need to get to my bullpen and not let this game get out of hand. And we've seen that across, you know, for all managers in the league, but it's a little bit different because in that game two, for Aaron Boone to get rid- to take Paxton out so quickly kind of shocked me a little bit. I know that if he does hit that home run, it's, you know, it's three or four or five. I mean, it's a three run home run, possibly making it four or five, nothing. And then you've got a pretty deep hole to crawl out of with Justin Verlander. So the idea was to keep that game as close as you possibly could until you get to the bullpen, because I think it actually played, it played into a bullpen game where I think Aaron Boone wanted it to go, but I don't think he anticipated his offense not doing much. Justin did a very good job of, you know, after that judge home run, really shutting things down. And then it did turn into a bullpen game because I, I don't know how you feel, but I feel if it did turn into a bullpen game, it would favor heavily on the New York Yankees side because they have such shutdown guys out there. Now, that being said, it was a tie ball game after George Springer hits that home run. You start to get a little bit deeper in the game. And as a manager, you're trying to find length in your bullpen. And I agree. That was a great call on Aroldis Chapman because they took a walk. I think Diaz walked off him. So the pitch count gets up. You don't want to burn him because you do have to bring him back even after a day off. And he found, and Aaron Boone found himself in a situation where he said, okay, I need some length. There's not much offense in this game because nobody's got a hit in the last five, six innings. So I'm going to bring in J-Hap and, and roll the dice in that sense. And he did. And to your point about J-Hap being in that game, I believe that the Astros on the other side saw that as a positive also. They got, they got rid of nasty. Everybody that was coming out of that bullpen, sinker, slider, power fastball, power, power uh, spin. And then you bring Jay Happ and you can all, all of a sudden you get your head above water and you say, ah, I can take a breath. I can work a count. I can see a pitch and wait for a mistake. And sure enough, Carlos Correa got one and launched it out of there. And it's kind of nice to see Carlos Correa contributing. He's having a good postseason. He's had a he has phenomenal numbers both regular season and postseason against the New York Yankees. He's going to love the big stage up there in New York. If he's healthy, he changes so many things for the Houston Astros. I know that you probably see the same things, but he made two of the biggest plays in that game too. He single handedly, I believe, saved the game and obviously won the game with the big swing because there was an uh, opportunity. I believe it was runners at first and second. And DJ LeMahieu was a runner at second base. A rocket was hit to Altuve. He got in between on whether or not to catch the line drive. And he sat back on it and it short hopped him and he couldn't keep it in front. It ricochets to his right. And literally out of nowhere comes Carlos Correa, bare hands it. And I call it the Cobra because when you grab that baseball and you get, you kind of cock that wrist to fire it, it looks like a Cobra coming out of your hand. And he launched an absolute laser at 87 miles an hour from second base deep second base right to the catcher Trinos who catches it and has it feels like a half an hour to tag DJ LeMahieu to keep the score where it's at so he is a dynamic force when he's healthy uh if if he's healthy he's able to stay out there is that dude not just one of the more pure fantastic talents in all of baseball to watch I think we know that he is I, I I mean, we talked about that. Really, it's his health that is going to, you know, kind of make or break his legacy. But, you know, that, that game is kind of, it's not as big a stage, but I remember when Derek Jeter made that, he was kind of out of position and roaming around. He made that backhand flip to get Giambi's brother out at the plate, uh, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I was like, oh, and I mean, people still show that highlight. Like, what an innate, like, awesome talent kind of, like, 
second second sense or sixth sense kind of play that that was. I think it's funny because you start watching the people you know and you end up knowing all the people on the field. But having played with Phil Nevin, I watched him and they had a great camera angle of him moving down the line and waving him. And the funny thing is on TV, when you watched it twice, you couldn't see where the ball went. It looked like it went back into the outfield grass. It ricocheted and it went out and the depth you couldn't see. So I think what Phil was looking at was... Altuve clanked it and he had LeMahieu running at all times and then realized that it had rolled kind of forward. Like Altuve had knocked it forward and sideways, not backwards. And I think the momentum of the ball, uh, the, how hard it was hit and the way Altuve you know, kind of, kind of, you know, like you said, it was a tweener. He came in on it, but it wasn't sure where it went. I, I, I saw Phil kind of put his hands in his head like, oh. But I think it was actually that you just couldn't see where the ball was. And he had LeMahieu going. But as you said, those are the little things that make or break games. And in a one-run ball game, Correa did that. And then he hit the ball out. And I, I want to just correct something you said when you said he hit a mistake out. Um, I think the ball was elevated, but it was outer. It was outside. And I think, you know, I know pitching in late-inning situations. What? You, Go ahead. You, you are Come such on. a pitcher, man. Oh, that's right. <laughs> But I hate that we always go, oh, he hit a mistake. Like, you know, you guys are looking for pitches. But, you know, no, you're right. Oh, yeah. So, some, sometimes hitters hit pitchers' pitches. You know, That's right. I, I hate to go back to Clayton Kershaw, but the Rendon home run was a pitch down in the zone. He went down and got it. Sometimes Correct. hitters just hit good pitches. Correct. And down and into a righty is not nearly as sweet a spot as down and into a lefty. It's kind of the wheelhouse swing. We've known that. So Rendon hit a pretty good pitch down and in. I would say the same thing with Correa. I mean, he knows the field really well. He knows his power. Matt Williams taught me this. Of course, it was at the end of my career, which would have been great to know at the beginning. Like all this stuff comes in afterward, which is why I'm here doing a podcast. He said that, you know, 2-0, like a 2-0 pitch, right? And so you guys can do this 0-0 as well. But he's like, he's a 2-0 cleanup hitter in the big leagues. And if you think a guy's going to throw you a meatball down the middle or he's going to try and come middle in on 2-0, you're crazy. So what Matt would do either visually like Altuve does because he stands so far off the plate or actually physically when the pitcher gets set is scooch up on the plate because he figures he's going to get a fastball, but the guy's probably going to try and go knee high away. And so Matt would scooch up on the plate and make that pitch that's away middle. And he'd be like, all right, if he throws it in this spot 2-0, I'm going to go for it. And then, you know, guys would miss for away or he would center it and crush it. And people are like, oh, he hit that 2-0 fastball. Well, you know a big league pitcher is not going to throw you a 2-0 meatball down the middle. He's going to try and throw a fastball, but he's going to try and locate it. And I think that that's what Correa did to Jay Happ. I, I think he went up there going, all right, he's going to throw me a first pitch fastball. He's going to try and get ahead, but he's probably not going to throw middle in with the game on the line here. So he went up there trying to make that pitch almost better than it was, and he got it. And I think that's that's – I am such a pitcher, but I, I just want to kind of reinforce the fact that that's not a uh, that's not necessarily a mistake. It was elevated, but Correa did what he's supposed to do. Yeah, you're right. You got to take a look at both sides, and that's why I love having Tuttle on here because I could spout and say hitters are the best hitters ever. They always hit mistakes. They never miss anything, and pitchers pitchers don't know what they're doing out there. But it's nice to have that uh, that other perspective and makes things a little bit. A little bit different for me, and it's good for me because it's only going to create a better conversation or more questions for me that Tuttle's able to answer and bring to the table. So good stuff by you, Tuttle. The uh, Yankees, I don't know if you caught this part of the game, but uh, they were in the dugout. And truth be told, Major League Baseball has allowed 
uh, iPads in the dugout. They control the information that's on there. It's all checked out, security's in there and things like that. So you can't just have an iPad uh, showing every camera angle, every this, you know, there are certain specific things that are allowed on the iPad in the dugouts in Major League Baseball. And yes, there may be a printout. Yes, there may be a sheet that they go to that is proprietary because that's how the Yankees do it. But there was a scene in the dugout and somebody was showing a piece of paper with some pictures, some photographs on it of it looked like, you know, the opposing pitcher. And part of the job in the video room right now is to check and see if guys are tipping, pick up on tendencies. And maybe if they see something, they want to get as much knowledge as they can. They may have found something, printed it out, send it to the dugout, and somebody was showing it to Aaron Judge. He happened to glance at the camera, and he you know, immediately turns his back like, ooh, don't look at it. And Twitterverse went nuts. And I wanted to respond to everybody, but so many of them were coming in, so I have a podcast that I can talk about it on. But I don't – big deal. There's security. There is like, – what people don't know is that there's legitimate Major League security – in the clubhouse, in the tunnels, in the dugout. And if there is anything shady going on, it's going to be shut down. We found out that Boston was using an iWatch, you know, a couple of years ago. There are ways to find this stuff out. They're not going to watch. And by the way, a lot of major league officials are watching this playoff game. So if they saw that, they might have called down and said, hey, Johnny, go down there and check out what that piece of paper is. It might be illegal. You know, so there are plenty of people watching. Just relax on that stuff. The players still go out and play the game. Don't be that paranoid person that is checking out and go, oh, they're cheating, they're cheating, everybody's cheating. Guess what? You're right. Everybody is cheating. Because if you went over to the Astros dugout, guess what you'd find? iPads with the same kind of stuff and probably somebody bringing them a printout. Guess how they found out Glass now was tipping? Same way. They took a picture and said, picture on the left fastball picture on the right slider lay off the one on the on the right or whatever they want to do it's happening on both sides don't don't be so fanatical that you don't see the whole picture both teams are looking for a competitive advantage any way they can and yes there is oversight and, you know i want the oversight job because i'm wondering if they just got a guy like concert goers where they just give him a yellow jacket <laughs> And they let him sit down there and like, oh, yeah, that looks fine. Like, it, it obviously has to have somebody with some knowledge into what they're going. But I think what you just said, and you didn't say it the first few sentences, is competitive advantage. So, I mean, Gaylord Perry used to get caught with pine tar. That was cheating. And when he got caught with pine tar or sandpaper, they threw him out of the game. The I watched the Red Sox got fined significantly for that. That was in the regular season, not the playoffs. And they got fined for that and punished for that. I mean... We are all looking for a competitive advantage. Um, it's not cheating if, like you said, if there's oversight and they're not breaking any of the rules, it is they're looking for that competitive advantage. And I think, as you said, the reason you give multiple signs and touch the mask from a catching standpoint with somebody on second base is the same thing. You're allowed to steal signs if the opposing team is not smart enough to try and give you a little kind of you know, rope a dope, right? If they're not, if they're not trying to have, you know, and that's why the third base coach goes down there and gives you signs with an indicator. I mean, the whole thing is we all, you know, we're all watching and there may be a squeeze on, or there may be a steal, but it's a competitive advantage. And I think that's totally fine and allowed. The one other thing I will say to that though, is, I mean, this is the old school, new school. I mean, the analytics and the feel, I mean, I, you've been on teams before. I knew guys, we were like, Oh, we got him. We know what he's doing. He's tipping his pitches. There were hitters that didn't want to know. 
They didn't want to know. They were see ball, hit ball. They didn't really want to know if the guy was being tipped. So yes, you're looking for subtleties. You're looking for tendencies probably more than anything. But you know what? Most people know that Araldus Chapman's going to throw a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, and 99% of the time he throws it down the middle. And guess what? Try and hit it. Like, that's where we're at in baseball. So, yeah, some guys want to know what's coming. Some guys don't. You can spit on a 1-2 pitch if you know a split or a slider's coming. But you still got to do it. And I, I could relate that to steroids, too. I mean, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are Hall of Fame baseball players. Did they take steroids? Probably. Are they still Hall of Fame baseball players? Yep. Were they Hall of Fame baseball players before they took the steroids? They certainly were. And I shouldn't be sticking up for steroids because that, you know, that's part of the era that I played in and might have kept me from achieving my dreams. But I will say, you know, you can see it with your own eyes, the guys that are the best players. And so, like you said, you still have to go out there and perform the task. And as you said, I think that was just uh, it was kind of where the camera was at the time that made that look like it was a, you know, made it look like it was more than it was. Love it. Tuttle's getting fired up. This is how it goes. We got to pick on these topics, get these scabs ripped off and talk about it a little bit. And I love that fans are engaged and watching the game close enough. So stay engaged, stay curious, but understand that it is, it is going two ways. They're not doing this to be completely you know, shady about things. Everybody's shady. Everybody's trying to look for the advantage. And that's all it's about. Uh, one thing that needs to change, Astros offense. They need to score some runs. It's driving me bonkers, much like I know it's driving every fan at home bonkers, watching such a historic offense in the regular season struggle the way they are. Granted, pitching is very good. Defenses are better. But the fact that the Astros in two games are 10 for 64 is driving me nuts. It's a little bit of approach. That's a 156 batting average for those keeping track at home. And it's frustrating to me to watch them be indecisive. I'm not sure what yours. I want to. I'm curious as a pitcher for you, Tuttle, what you're seeing the how the Astros are approaching these at bats. But just on a pure visual, watching the way they are going out there, they look tentative. They look to be not confused, but they look to be a little indecisive on what they're able to go out there and do. And I'm not sure if it's because you know it could be because the way the Yankees pitched them during the regular season. They made the adjustment in the postseason, and the Astros are trying to figure out a game plan to adjust to what they're doing now. But I hope that adjustment happens quickly because they look indecisive at the plate. Other than George Springer and Carlos Correa really crushing the baseball and sitting on a slider for George and getting the fastball away and going with it for Carlos Correa, it looks like a lot of these guys are guessing and second-guessing themselves. Granted, the Yankees are shifting a lot more than I think they did during the regular season and having these guys hit into the shift. But there is some indecisiveness and some deep, you know, some counts that they're there's it feels like, man, I'm trying to get my brain to slow down so my words can come out. But it feels like they are in some I don't want to say deep counts, because when I say deep counts, I figure two, two, three, two counts, but they feel they're behind. They're behind in a lot of counts. There's a lot of two strike counts and all of a sudden they're put on the defensive. But I feel like they're getting to those defensive counts with two strikes by not being aggressive. I feel like the pitchers are making pitches to them and they're not taking the opportunity at some of the pitches early in the count to drive. And then they find themselves in that two strike count and then they go on defense and we see them uh, maybe making some soft contact. But they, to their credit, they have had some tough luck hitting the ball hard at guys. But 10 for 64 has got to change for the Houston Astros if they're going to go out there and score enough runs to offset, you know, maybe pitching in game four, game five, so to speak. Yeah, so we've talked a lot on this podcast specifically about a 162-game season, and that's important to have the sample size that 
that you do during the course of the regular season. But I think what's interesting is that in a five-game series especially, but now in a seven-game series, you do have to make adjustments. We see it in the NFL all the time. I mean, you know, somebody feels like they had the blueprint to beat the Chiefs, right? The, the Patriots threw it out there last year in the playoffs, and they've done well. And now you see the Colts do it, and now you see some other teams do it. I don't know if Houston actually used the blueprint, but they certainly kept Mahomes off the field, and then they scored a bunch of points. So um, typically you're not going to outscore them, but if the offense is off the field, you might have some advantage. I think, um, and this is kind of counter to what I've preached throughout this podcast, is that if that's what got you there, which is what we said about Dave Roberts last week, if that's what got you there, you got to stick with that. The bullpen helped you win 105, 106 games. You got to go with it. Now, if everybody knows that Bregman's going to take the first two pitches and they throw him right down the middle and he takes them, I'm, I'm just using him as an, as an example. He seems to have a pretty good uh, approach at the plate. Then the Yankees are going to go strike one, strike two, and now he's in a defensive position. It might be time to make some adjustments. As you said, be more aggressive. Um, I feel like Jordan is one who I've watched a lot. Um, I, I don't know if it's just because when I turn on TV, he's up. But he, uh, he comes up and he's very patient. He wants the ball away from him. He's not aggressive early. He's kind of, I don't know if he's trying to feel him out, but I think with his in intimidation factor, his success all year came from, I'm going to stand here and look like a monster, ball one, ball two. Now he's in a 2-0 or a 3-1 count, and that makes his swings a lot better because they, they went right after him. Strike one, strike two, they're jamming him. They're not letting him get his hands extended. I mean, you can kind of see the approach. My only, uh, I guess my only problem with saying that on this podcast is just that I, I don't know if I watched enough games throughout the year like you did to kind of make that a, a make that a, a foundational statement to what's going on. But but let's say this: they need to make some adjustments because, as you said, you know, scoring zero or one run in the first game and three in the next game in ten, eleven innings is just not it's not going to get it done. And 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 I'll touch on that in uh, what'll Tuttle say because I have a topic about that. Yeah, I want to get to that. What will Tuttle say? I know that we've spent an, ex an extended amount of time on the Astros and Yankees series. I'm going to hold off on the Nationals-Cardinals, but just to give you guys a heads up, the Nationals are up 3-0 in that uh, Cardinals series. They are wiping them out with pitching and defense and timely hitting. Um, game four of the Astros-Yankees series is going to be interesting to me because it has been labeled a bullpen day. I'm not sure if Urquidy is going to start and then maybe back him up with the bullpen early. It'll, a lot of it will probably depend on what Urquidy does, but that sets up an interesting, you know, interesting game five because game five, they don't necessarily have that start. Do they go with Granky? I would imagine they put Granky out there because the day he was traded on July 31st, guess where he was pitching right there in Yankee stadium. And he was shutting out the New York Yankees. So maybe he's got a good feel, good vibe. And I thought he actually looked pretty good in game one. You know, if I if I can get five innings and three earned runs out of Granky, uh, I like my chances. But to Tuttle's point, you got to see guys like Jordan and uh, George Springer be a little more consistent. And Tuttle was spot on with what Jordan was talking about. So game four and five will be Wednesday and Thursday, late games. Thursday, mark your calendars, Houstonians, because I will be at St. Arnold for a watch party, and I will be doing a Facebook Live. It will be a lot of fun. Maybe even having some T-shirts out there. I actually just got an email from our, our T-shirt guy saying, hey, I heard you're going to be at St. Arnold's. Maybe we can bring some tees out. So I'll see if that works with St. Arnold's. I don't want to get in, infringe on anything they're doing over there, but it should be a good time Thursday. And uh, like Tuttle said, we're all excited about this. We have been going strong in this podcast, but right now we're going to hand those reins over to Tuttle for 
Waddle, Buttle, Sack. Awesome, Blummer. Thanks. Hey, maybe we got to get a Bleacher Blums T-shirt with a St. Arnold logo on it, or something like that. We got to, we got to, yeah, we got to start putting this stuff together. So I'm or glad maybe, you, uh, yeah, pint pint glass mug. I don't know. Oh, I'm just kidding. Something. Hey, send it my way. <laughs> I got to make a visit to Houston this off season once the season's over. That that's gonna be the kicker. If you okay, uh, mark my words and mark this podcast number. What are we at? Thirty-eight, thirty-nine. I don't even 38, know. Thirty-eight. I think we're doing bi-weekly now, so I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, they're just racing by. Uh, if if Tuttle comes out, we will do a podcast from St. Arnold's. Oh, there we go. We can make that happen. Let's uh, let's yeah, maybe before spring training, somewhere like January, January, early February, when it's nice and uh, crisp and cool in Houston. I don't want to go out there when it's a hundred with mosquitoes and stuff. Sorry, Houston. yeah, doing a podcast in a hundo ain't no fun. No, no, no. I sweat as it is. So, hey, I'm glad you actually skipped the, Nat, the Nats-Cardinals series because my topic in Weddle Tuttle say was uh, about the, uh, the Astros and the Nationals, believe it or not. And I just, my first thought was, I'm not really sure. I mean, the Astros and the Yankees are having a heavyweight battle over here. Both the, you know, 105, 107 win in, wins uh, throughout the season. And I, I would say the same about the Yankees, but I know we're leaning to the Astros here, and that's that's who we're, we're we're expecting to see in the World Series, especially with their pitching. But I'm not sure the Astros want to see a rested Nationals team if they can win this series. I'm not. I mean, who wants to face Scherzer and uh, and uh, Strasburg and I guess even uh, even uh, Corbin, and then you got Hudson and and uh, Doolittle. I mean. I, I heard a stat yesterday on MLB.com. I got to give them credit or SiriusXM MLB. It was on um, Steve Phillips and uh, CJ's show. I think 164 outs that uh, that the Nationals have recorded in the series. 164 outs. I'm I'm just I'm throwing the numbers out there, folks. If, if I'm off, give me the numbers. 27 outs times five games, four games, whatever. In the playoffs, let's say, because they beat the the Dodgers in in four games, five games. So in 164 outs in the playoffs, 162 of the outs have been recorded by Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin, Hudson, and Doolittle. 162 out of 164 <laughs> outs for those five dudes. So, you know, I, I don't know if that, that gives you the key to winning a series, but I mean, I, I'd really be curious to hear your thought. That was the first thing I thought of last night when I'm like, yeah, go Astros. They're winning. They won a game. Great. Let this series go six games, let's say, seven games possibly. The Nationals look like they're going to steamroll the Cardinals, even if it goes two more games. So the Nationals, let's put them in the World Series. If they make the World Series, and you mentioned the Astros offense, is this something that, you know, obviously to win the World Series, you got you to win the next, you got to win this series and the next one. But I, I don't think it sets up that well. And I think before the year, everybody expected to be Astros and Dodgers anyway. And I, I think they'd be less nervous about facing the Dodgers just because of their history. So it, it, it just made me pause. I'm like, you know what? I do not want to face Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin, and, and, and that bullpen with the, game, with, the, with the world championship on the line. I, I know they will do, do it if they have to. And they'll rise to the challenge, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. No, the numbers are great. It's a that's an amazing number out of those 164 outs. I heard something the other day too that said that they have pitched in 80 plus innings, just over 80 innings, and they have over 100 strikeouts. So they're going out and doing it in dominant fashion with the strikeouts. So they have got great stuff. And I and I don't know how we overlook it 
But going into the playoffs, we did. We talked about the Astros rotation. We talked about the Tampa Bay Rays and their ability to go out there and pitch. Nothing on the National League side said, oh, my gosh, look at their pitching. You know, the, the, the Dodgers had great starting pitching. They got beat by a better rotation. I'm with you in the sense that Strasburg, Scherzer, and Corbin are a fearsome threesome. And guess who we saw in game one against the Cardinals? Anibal Sanchez went seven and two-thirds of no-hit baseball. So that guy is your Granky in their rotation. So how does, you know, th that's actually four starters compared to what the Astros have in three. And I think to your point, that might be what you're hinting at is if those guys can set up their rotation, back them down, keep those arms fresh and go into that. The only, you know, the only thing you hope is that their, their offense kind of loses their step a little bit and loses that rhythm and that timing that they have because they have done it in the traditional sense of phenomenal starting pitching. They played a good enough defense and they have gotten the timely hits. And that is one thing that I have always preached is that if you have very good pitching, very good defense, you're going to suppress the other team. And then the timely hitting means that the, that those two other aspects are holding it down until you get that hit. And that's why it's timely, but they have done everything right. Uh, Davey Martinez has done a good job with them and it's been a lot of fun to watch, but those guys have a serious chip on their shoulder and there's nothing greater in the playoffs than belief. And right now, guess who believes in themselves? It's the it's the Washington Nationals as a team. And maybe it's because of the Bryce Harper effect. They don't have Johnny Superstar in there, and they're playing like a pretty good team. Yeah, you know, that's a that's a, probably a topic for another day. I saw an article about the Superstar effect as well. But I will say, so Sanchez was in that mix too. I missed him in that five pitcher because Sanchez has had a couple starts. He did start against the Dodgers. So add Sanchez in the mix. So it's Sanchez, Doolittle, uh, Hudson. Uh, Strasburg, Corbin, and Scherzer, and you add those guys in, and out of 166 outs or 164 outs, they've gotten 162 of those outs with those five, six guys. So that's an impressive stat. And I will say, I think the other reason that the the Nationals are overlooked is they started the year 19 and 31. And when you look at a team like that, whether they're whether whether they bond as a team or not, I think when you start out 19 and 31, people are like, you know what? I mean, they're just not going to be formidable. So. I, I don't know. Like I said, it, it made me take pause and it made me think, all right, you know, I'm on the Astros bandwagon. This podcast is heavily supported by Astros fans and Astros locals. And uh, I'd be nervous about pace, uh, facing the uh, Nationals, especially if they get a few more days rest. Uh, I will say what you said, if the Astros can make the offensive adjustment, adjustment great, but it is still nice to have Verlander and Cole and and Granky to face, you know, like you said, Sanchez, Scherzer, Strasburg, and Corbin. So that group is uh, is you know is well armed, but uh, the Astros could be too. So that that was my topic for the day, and I just thought that that was uh, something to think about, Astros fans. Like we got to be careful what we wish for. We do got to be we do have to beat the Yankees first, but watch out for those Nationals. And you know what else is interesting that I thought about the other night when I would, or yeah, the other night when they won that game three is I'm sitting there and I'm going, wait a minute, you know, who's going to be incredibly excited about this matchup if it is the Astros and Nationals is guess who shares uh, the complex down in West Palm Beach, Nationals, Astros. So it would be an all, just a single spring training site where you could go and watch next spring training, both teams that made it to the World Series. Wouldn't that be unique in itself and easy to market as far as trying to get fans in there? And we have talked a lot about baseball. Tuttle's gonna, done a great job bringing up that Nationals cards topic. But guess what? We had a pretty good weekend as far as fantasy football. And we're going to get some updates on Don't Bet On It.
Nice. Don't bet on it. You can handle the fantasy football updates. I touched it on it earlier. We're five and one. We backdoored a few wins, but hey, when you have Zeke Elliott and Chubb and Tom Brady and Edelman, you know, you can you can have a few zeros. I think we picked up a. Uh, I actually I did the the GMing this week and I picked up Demarcus Robinson for the Chiefs. He scored a total of zero point zero zero points. And we still won our game against our good buddy who invited us into the league. So uh, shout out to John. Thank you for uh, for softballing us that W. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, if you're going to beat a team with that kind of scoring that we had, I mean, why not beat the guy who invited you into the into the situation? So Johnny Adams, we greatly appreciate you. And maybe we'll put that score on a hat, maybe a new era hat, and just wear it around every time we see it, dude. Well, we're trying to get some Bleacher Blums hats from New Era. Those aren't happening, so maybe we're just going to get a, a 106 to 94 or something like that. We'll just, we're the only ones that know what it means. It's great. I was going to say, yeah, all of a sudden they're on back order. Yeah, sorry. Can't make that happen. Hey, uh, so, so from the don't bet on it segment, somehow I just cannot go three for three, but as I keep uh, hammering on this podcast, two out of three ain't bad. That's 66%. So over three podcasts, we're now six for nine on the picks. And the actual pick that we lost, and this is, I'm not going to be that guy like, oh, we should have won that one because, you know, they're honestly the Browns plus two. I mean, the Browns were up 20 to six in that game and they just kind of gave it away. And now the Seahawks earned a few things, but man, they gave that away. And the thing that gave me pause, my basketball buddies that listen to this podcast will appreciate this. Two weeks ago, I gave out the Raiders as my pick in uh, London. And the and all the guys at basketball like oh no 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 we don't no no they're playing the uh, I think they're playing the Eagles over in London and they're like no no the Eagles are gonna win that game you don't want to have the Raiders and the Raiders won that game this week I went to basketball and I said I really like the Browns plus two and I'd already mentioned on the podcast they're like yeah we like that too and I should have known as soon as all those guys were like yeah I really like that pick no <laughs> I gotta take the other side. So remember, fade the public is my motto, but we're still, like I said, we're six for nine. And so if you were actually betting a, some real money instead of funny money, we'd be, uh, we'd be making a living with, uh, with our picks. So I'm going to have the picks. We're Tuesday now. No. Yeah. Today's Tuesday. So I'll have picks. We'll get together again Thursday or Friday and I'll throw out some more picks. So if you guys have a, uh, a gambling account maybe get it yeah set. strong stuff from Tuttle getting those uh, don't bet on it's maybe we're gonna have to alter that segment a little bit and take one of those words out of there because he has been so consistent with the two for threes I'll take that any day of the week and you know who else I'll take any day of the week is just geek it solutions is an IT and computer repair company located here in Houston they have over 40 years of providing excellent customer service and again I can't tell you how great they've been to Tuttle and I helping us get our website up at bleacherblums.com. They've done a phenomenal job answering our emails, answering our phone calls, and even giving us ideas on how to make it better. So make sure you check out Just Geek It Solutions. They provide same day service for those seeking computer repair, server repair, network service, laptop service, virus removal, and custom computer builds. They handle thousands of business clients as well as residential customers. See why they are the best computer repair company in Houston. You can call them at 281-826-4357 or visit them online at justgeekitsolutions.com. And with that being said, we're going to go into the final segment of this podcast. I know it's been a little bit extended, but we're hoping that a lot of you are listening to this podcast as you're watching the Astros hopefully beat up on the New York Yankees. 
And I'm going to talk a little bit about a situation that I sent out a tweet uh, about the umpiring in a two-pitch sequence. And it was with Gary Sanchez at the plate. And I wish off the top of my head I could remember who the umpire was. But I said it was a complete abomination of umpiring in two pitches. Number one, because the pitch that Gary Sanchez struck out on was not foul-tipped. It was uh, clearly oh, about a, six inches away from the baseball, but called a foul tip by the home plate umpire. A.J. Hinch proceeded to come out and ask if he would get help. He did not, stuck with the call. And then the, the next pitch from Josh James, man, I don't know, it must have been five, six inches off the outside corner. He brings him up. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Number one, you jacked the call. Number two, you jacked the second call to make up for the first jacked up call. How about get it right the first time, man? I, I, that was so annoying to me that people were like, oh my gosh, Gary Sanchez, oh this. That. I'm like, yeah, the umpire missed the call. But you have in the playoffs, you've got three guys on the bases, two guys down the line. Two plus three, I'm terrible at math, equals five. So there's an opportunity to go out and get five of your best friends to say, hey, man, I kind of, I think I think I got it, but did I get it? Those guys down the lines would have helped him out and maybe said, you know what? That pitch was pretty far outside and in the dirt. I don't think he got anywhere near it. And I didn't see any contact or hear anything. Let's, let's overturn it and call him out. But instead, he keeps it to himself, rings him up. I've got no problem with Gary Sanchez selling it to the umpire. Like I foul tipped it to try and extend the at bat. Everybody does it. It's like the phantom tag when I was playing. I tried to sell so many outs or double plays and umpires bought it. So it's part of the game. It's part of the gamesmanship. But I was thoroughly annoyed that he decided to take it out on Gary Sanchez by calling that pitch on the outside corner to make up for it. Because it's not Gary's fault that you jacked the call. Call the strike zone. That's your job. But go out and ask for help. You've got too many guys out there. And this day and age with replay, everybody in the planet, you know, that has a TV available to them, saw that you butchered the call. There's no reason to take it out on Gary Sanchez. And then watching the Monday Night Football game last night, there were two calls, for, uh, two penalties, I believe it was on uh, one of the defensive linemen for the Detroit Lions for uh, illegal hands to the face. And every replay, and, and Booger McFarland, who's just going bonkers, I applaud him for saying that that was an absolutely horrific call. But two calls where he got up on the caller and never got in the guy's face were called that led to a couple of first downs. Eventually, the Green Bay Packers win. My question to you, Tuttle, is how do you feel about the play with the uh, – and the, the, those football players were not reviewable, and neither is the foul tip. But going back to the Gary Sanchez play, do you have an issue with Gary Sanchez? And then do you feel that with calls like this being made, are we getting closer and closer and closer to too much replay? Where do we draw the line? It's funny to have your heart in a game, uh, which I didn't. And I, I didn't think it was – so I didn't think the strike three call afterward was that bad. So that's that's definitely the pitcher in me. <laughs> another another pitcher. Well, Aroldis, pitcher here's statement. the difference is Aroldis Chapman threw that pitch uh, either the inning prior or the inning after, and he was off the plate, and the guy called it a ball. So that's the argument I have is like he was like, oh, ball. It's the same. They're both 99 miles an hour on the outside. He's like, no, it's out. The umpire's name is Corey Blazer. I just Googled it while we were chatting. Thank you. Um, the problem I have, and it's the same problem I had when I played, to be honest with you, is there seems to be an issue with asking for help. I mean, very often when the home, because the home plate umpire has the discretion, it's kind of like, and I've seen this happen in a game before where the guy checks his swing 
and the catcher the catcher has to ask the home plate umpire to ask for help. The home plate umpire can turn him down, which I've seen happen. No, 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 I'm not asking for help. He didn't swing. What? Like now in the big leagues, it's kind of become a, a mainstay where they just point and let the umpire do his thing. But there, that's the archaic kind of way. And I think this is the point about replay is now that you know, forget that replays like gaining more traction or, but as an umpire, I know that everything's being seen. And if AJ Hinch has seen something in the dugout or everybody's pointing at the, uh, the big screen, you know, let's, 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 let's err on the side of, Hey, I thought I heard him foul tip it, but everybody seems to think that he didn't foul tip it probably because they all saw it on TV. Let me go ask for help. And I think that's where you could probably avoid some of the controversy for sure about what replay is going to do and what it's not going to do. And then just ask those guys. Now, if all the other umpires said, nope, sorry, I didn't see anything, or nope, I'm not going to, then, then then we would be having a different discussion. But at least he had the 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 balls or the uh, the wherewithal to ask about ask for help. And I think that's the key. I don't think, I also don't think it's a makeup call, which is funny. So that's a whole another discussion for another day. I don't think guys do that. But to your point about phantom tags, which I've seen before, the guys do the hand switch. If the ball beats the player, you know, typically that's an out. Now with replay, it's like, oh, you, you actually have to change the way you do things. It's the same as flopping in the NFL. They were talking about Travis Kelsey or in the in the NBA, excuse me, the flop. They started finding guys for that. Soccer, you can get a yellow card for taking a dive. And they were saying that to uh, about Kelsey. He kind of sold that hold or that pass interference this weekend that they overturned. They said that was a, it was not holding. It was pass interference. And because it didn't happen there anyway. That's a whole nother topic as well. But all that to say, I don't think there's anything wrong with the umpire asking for help in that situation. So I don't get into the controversy of, well, he rung him up as a makeup call, but you got to get it right in that situation. And I think if the umpire, I'm sorry, if the managers on the other team or somebody comes out and says, hey, look, I saw the replay. It looks like he didn't do it. There's nothing wrong with asking for help. Yeah, it's not, it's not a problem unless you're driving with your wife across country and you have no idea where you're at and, you, and your phone doesn't have any service to give you an idea where you're going. You do not pull over and ask for directions. That's just a guy thing, man. You can't do it. Maybe it holds true on the baseball field. That's right. And that's going to do it for Bleacher Blums. We are going to try and download this audio and get it to you as soon as we possibly can. Thank you for giving us your undivided attention as you enjoy our noise in your ears. Continue to rate, subscribe, review and interact, get to bleacherblums.com. Let us know how you're feeling through the mailbag, and maybe you'll make it onto our podcast. We want to thank all the first responders, everybody in the military. You do a phenomenal job of getting in harm's way to keep us safe and keep things right for us. We greatly appreciate you. Tuttle, last words. Yeah, so I thought uh, I thought doing a bi-weekly podcast would keep this thing tight and short. We'd have less to say, and here we are, probably our longest podcast ever. We do greatly appreciate not just first responders, military, all of you, but we also appreciate all the Bleacher Blums listeners. We get an occasional shout out from Australia Amen on Twitter. Yeah, on from Twitter, uh, the uh, the lady from Australia. Hey, we're about Australia. Listen to your podcast. Like our listeners are worldwide, folks. Join join the Bleacher Blums bandwagon. It's filling up. So uh, hopefully we can get this thing downloaded before the uh, before the game kicks off today or uh, first pitch and. Uh, We'll see you guys before the end of the week. Sounds good. And Tuttle's right. We would not be doing this if it wasn't for the fans. The return has been great. We love being with you and, and we enjoy the interaction. So thank you for everything. Continue to listen. We'll see you 
hopefully soon. But until then, we want to make sure that you get after it. Most of all, believe it.